Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church and Pastor Josh LaGrange. This week, Pastor Josh picks back up in the book of Romans. In this sermon, the sanctification process is explained. We are shown how sanctification fits into the overall salvation process. You can join us by turning in your Bibles to Romans chapter 6 as Pastor Josh delivers his message titled, What is Sanctification? This week, this week is the introduction to the whole chapter and the, the doctrine that takes us through. So I'm going to read the whole chapter this week. Occasionally, I'm going to kind of comment on it to try to help you as we read it to understand the outline and how it fits together. So we ended chapter five with um, uh, the gospel being preached that we were in Adam before coming to Christ. And then upon turning to Christ, there has been the imputation, Jesus's righteousness counted as ours. We were in a place of God's wrath, but now have come to a place where for the believer, grace reigns. All kinds of sin was there, but God's grace has triumphed over sin. Now comes the question as the first part of verse one. So chapter six, verse one, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? That's the question that will be answered throughout the chapter and the doctrines that are introduced. This is how we get there. And what's going to happen is this question is answered numerous times. I'll point some of them out to you. Verse two, may it never be. Here's the first way that we see this answered. How shall we who died to sin still live in it. Now he's going to explain what that means. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him, in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Here's the second way the question is answered. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Now he's gonna explain that. Knowing that Christ having been raised from the dead is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Continuing to answer this question. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death, or of obedience resulting in righteousness. But thanks be to God, 
that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification. And the outcome, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Please bow with me and let's pray and ask for help. Our gracious Father, um, We want to ask that at the beginning of uh, starting this new section that you would bless our study the whole way through. Father, we pray that you would protect us from going into error. We pray that you would lead us into truth, that we would come to the right conclusions, that we would interpret it rightly, read it rightly, and be honest with it and not dishonest. So Father, we pray as you have told us you would do by the work of your Spirit, that you would lead us into all truth. We pray that you would do that. And Father, I pray that we would not be armchair theologians that simply talk about Scripture, but without applying it. Lord, I I pray, make this to be life-transforming, we pray. Father, I pray that every believer in our church family, that this would be a catalyst for bringing great change, great progress in growth, in holiness. Lord, that you would bring about tremendous advances in in our individual walks with you, but then Lord, also us as, as a body. We also pray, oh God, as the gospel is clearly preached in this, uh, Lord, to the unbeliever as well, we pray that there would be those that are not yet in Christ who come to faith throughout this. And so, Father, we pray that uh, this morning you'd bless us as we study the thousands of things that need to happen. Um, anytime we come to your word, we ask that you give them. Please send your spirit. Please, God, work on our hearts that we will be receptive, tilled soil, not hard and stony, but also not the rocky soil or the thorny soil, but the tilled soil that responds to the word rightly. Make us that and help me, oh God, to preach rightly and fill me with your spirit, we pray. For your glory and for the good of your people, we ask these things. Please bless. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Imagine the town of Ferdinand began to be regularly barraged by RPGs being fired in from outside of town. And so imagine town leaders get together and they build a defense system so that as the RPGs are fired, we were able to shoot most of them out of the air. But day after day, more are being fired and we are able to shoot many of them out, but this continues on. What needs to happen? Well, there most definitely needs to be the defense system that's been built so that we can be shooting the missiles out of the air. But at some point, a group of men are going to have to go hunt down the source. Who's firing these? Where's it coming from? 
the head needs to be cut off. So imagine a group of men get together and they begin to head out to go hunt down the source. But as they're about to leave town, a contingency from the town comes out and opposes them and stops them and say, what are you doing? Why are you leaving? Why aren't you addressing the problem? The men respond, well, that's exactly what we're going to do. But then the mob complains, you guys... You guys got your head in the clouds. You, you can't even see that stuff out there. You need to be addressing this. You need to be addressing this is the problem right in front of our eyes. The life of the Christian, and then by extension, the kingdom ministry that we engage in is a lot like that. There is a source. There is a heart of the matter, and there are ways that God has ordained to address the heart of the matter. And then out of the heart of the matter, there are 20,000 symptoms that are coming out of the source. There are the missiles in the air. And there's always the temptation to address the symptoms, but not the sickness, to focus on the missiles instead of the source that's firing. And in scripture, God certainly does tell us to address symptoms. God certainly does tell us to address the missiles in the air, but the great depths of scripture, the primary calling, the place where God spends the bulk of the time and shows us to put the bulk of our emphasis is always in addressing the source, the root, the heart of the matter. But when you address the heart of the matter, it is always confounding to human wisdom. Human wisdom says we can see the missiles, we can see the symptoms, let's address that. But God calls us to do things that oftentimes make zero sense to us at first. It's not until later we look back and we see the genius. Like God telling Gideon to send 99% of his army home, but show up to the battlefield with the Midianites with a trumpet in one hand and a torch in the other. And the naysayers do what the naysayers do best. But God is always after the deeper, the root, the source, the heart. Now, with that illustration, we could apply it to all kinds of areas. We apply it to ministry. What are we to be giving the greatest amounts of our effort to? Addressing symptoms or addressing the hearts of men with the gospel? By all means, we are to address symptoms. We are to address poverty. We are to help people in broken marriages. We are to teach people how to be better fathers, better mothers, help folks cope with depression and sorrow and such like this. But the greatest effort is always to be given to the real greatest need. Salvation by the gospel and then the heart transformation that God brings through his means, the spiritual strengthening, addressing the depths, which then transforms the life and addresses missiles being fired. And God's methods for addressing the source, the heart, is always confounding to human wisdom. There's always a movement out there who are saying to those who engage in God's methods, you guys have your head in the clouds. You need to be addressing this because this is the need right in front of our eyes. But here's where I'm um, going with this this morning. 
Addressing the heart of the matter is addressing our hearts and the hearts of everyone else on this planet. And the way that God addresses it confounds the wisdom of men. God's methods are the gospel first, bringing salvation, bringing forgiveness of sins, and then on these people, these of us that he has brought to himself, his methods confound. He gives us ways of doing it that many look at with a quizzical eye. The human wisdom looks at some of these passages we're studying, like Romans 5, 6, 7, 9, looks at some of these places and goes, oh, preacher, here you go again. Would you just, just give me six weeks of, of helpful tips for my finances from the book of Proverbs. Just, just give me the book of Proverbs. Just give me Romans 12. Because, by the way, Romans 12 is like this really straightforward a list of go home, do this kind of teaching. Okay, but, but don't give me Romans 6 and 7 and 9. Whatever you do, don't give me chapter 9. There's always this, there's always this thought. I don't need doctrine. I need what's practical. I need what's relevant. We have many things to respond to that. First, what in the world makes you think that you know better than God? Number two, what in the world makes you think that you have the right to define yourself and tell yourself what you need and God was just clueless in all of this? And second of all, when God gives his methods, when God gives Romans 6, 7, 9, he is addressing the roots and he's doing it in his ways. And I don't just mean the doctrine, though this is critical in this. The studying of doctrine is God going deeper than just, I've got problems in my marriage. God is going way down deep to the pride, to the lust, to the sinfulness at its core. God is addressing here, and then what comes out is addressed. But it's not only the doctrine, it is the application of those things. It is the doing of what we will see in Romans 6 and and in Romans 7. But all the things that God calls us to, they seem confounding to human wisdom. When God gives us the book of Leviticus, he is addressing the root and apparently we need it. And then after we study it, we go, oh, I did need it after all. I just didn't see it at first. God has the expectation that we would grow up to row bust maturity in Christ. God calls us to become redwoods and not the little gumball saplings. But what does it take? What does it take to grow up into the, the mighty oaks and the redwoods that he wants us to be? Well, that's kind of a loaded question and more than what we'll cover today because that addresses things like suffering. If you're going to grow up to become what God wants you to become, that, that man of God who walks with him, that deep, rich woman of God. If you're we're going to become that, then God is going to send us through some seasons of suffering that put some spiritual hair on our chest, metaphorically speaking. And other passages talk about some of those things, but this subject right here, to become what God wants us to become, there are things that we must take the initiative on. So 
In becoming who God wants us to become, there are some things that you really won't cause. It will come from outside of you. God will send difficulty and in his design, in his infinite wisdom, it's exactly what you and I needed to challenge us and bring us to growth in those things. That's from outside of ourself, God sending them. But the Bible also shows that in us becoming who he calls us to be, there are actions that we are to take, ways that we are to participate in, ways that we are to give ourselves over to certain things that put the spiritual hair on the chest and grow us up into the full measure and stature of what he wants us to become. And it is those things that chapter six and other places in the New Testament are primarily addressing. Part of what we see in chapter six is that God calls us to grow. He expects us to grow. In fact, he's just gonna just say, in my people, it's gonna happen. One way or the other, growth in Christ is going to happen. And he tells us some of the why and some of the how. The primary subject, now, okay, there are a lot of doctrines in chapter six. You don't get any chapter of the Bible where you don't have a whole lot of things going on, but the primary banner that flies over chapter six is sanctification. If you don't know what that word means yet, that's okay. We're going to talk about it today. I'll, I'll define it briefly. It is to grow in Christ. It is to grow as a Christian. This chapter also has uh, an, other doctrines that are a part of it, like perseverance of the saints, where God says that the true people of God, how can we know them? They are marked by they're the ones who endure till the end, and they will be kept to the end. That's going on in here as well. And if you think about it, sanctification and that doctrine, they're, they're friends. They get along very well. They're always together when you look at these things. But let me show you kind of how it plays out in the chapter. Here's how the Spirit of God led Paul to teach this. The end of chapter 5 ends with God gave the law so that transgression would increase. Humans became even more sinful with the giving of the law than with, if they had been had the law of Moses not, had, had not even been given. But then we're told where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Grace reigns for the believer. Then chapter six, verse one, what shall we say then? Here is, here's the Bible once again, anticipating questions and dealing with objections. By the way, these objections, this objection right here in verse one is still getting thrown around today. It is still something that the people of God encounter by people accusing the preaching of the gospel is doing this. Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Over the centuries, people have asked the question in a hundred different ways or even just made accusations. It boils down to this basic question. Does salvation by grace mean that I can live however I want? If I can be confident that I am right with God and saved and it comes by faith, well, then does that mean that I can just live as I please, live in the flesh? See, it's a huge light bulb moment to come to realize how we are saved, that we are not saved by good works. You are not able to make yourself right with God by your deeds, your religious participation, anything that you can do. We are unable 
to, to tip some sort of scales. People imagine that there's this scale in heaven of good works, bad works, and, and we're just trying to do enough good works to outweigh the bad. There is no scale. That's not the way that you're right with God. We are unable to make ourselves fit for heaven, fit for the presence of God, fit for relationship and fellowship with him. We are sinful to the core. We are unable to change that as the leopard is not able to change its spots. So you and I who are accustomed to doing evil, we cannot make ourselves righteous. God designed a way to make us right with him, to cleanse us, but it would not come by our obedience, our religiosity or any of this. God would give it as a gift. Full and complete pardon, cleansing, forgiveness of sins, and the promise of one day, like all of this junk in me is gone. It's out of me living in righteousness. God has made all of that available as a gift. The whole point is you don't earn it. It is grace. It is grace, grace, grace. And the way that we receive that is by faith. It's by faith. It's by responding to Christ in faith. So to learn those things is a pretty big revelation. It's a big light bulb moment. And so throughout history, the question has come up. All right, well, if I'm saved by grace, not by my works, and then to add on top of that, the Bible says that once you come to salvation, you can never lose that salvation. Well, then I guess that means it really doesn't matter how I live from now on. I can do whatever I want. I heard a man say one time, I could murder somebody right now, and I know that I'm still saved. People have worded it in all kinds of different ways, but it boils down to, does grace mean I can do whatever I want? Or to even go further than this, does grace, the gospel of grace, promote more sinning? See, opponents of the gospel accuse us of this. It's been happening for 2,000 years and it continues today. People who hold to a works-based salvation, they look in at us preaching the gospel of grace, which is just the gospel in the Bible. We've been seeing that, okay? But preaching the gospel of grace and they say this, you guys are telling people that they can just do whatever they want, that they don't need to be good, that they can just believe and then live like hell and everything's gonna be okay and you guys are gonna produce a bunch of heathens but who say they're going to heaven. Some wicked minds, even within the church, have said things like this. Hey guys, if God is glorified by saving sinners, let me give him a lot of glory. Let's sin it up. Let's do it all. And then God will be even more, be shown more glorious because he's going to be forgiven a lot of sin in my life. I'll make sure of it. That sounds ridiculous, but you would be surprised by how intelligent people can sound by using big fancy words to say things just like that. It's happened all through the life of the church. Now that's dishonest, but dishonesty doesn't stop people from stupidity. We see it um, in the book of 1 Corinthians. One of the things you encounter there is that there were some people in the Corinthian church who had the attitude, I'm saved and God's gonna destroy this body anyway. So it doesn't matter what I do with my body. Drink it up, toke it up, sex it up, doesn't matter. It's the soul that matters. You ever heard people say, all that matters is the heart. That's what they said in Corinth during the Reformation. 
There was a group of wicked, unconverted, dishonest people, but who attended church. I need to make that distinction. But who attended church and they saw in the gospel of grace an opportunity to feel good about myself, that I'm saved, and they deluded themselves that I got heaven, but then yet I can live however I want. They actually called themselves the libertines. They said, we have liberty in Christ, liberty to do as we please in Christ. And so they lived in fleshly indulgence. Over and over again in church history, there have been these groups of antinomians pop up. Anti meaning no or against and nomian, okay? That's from the Greek word for law. So no law. And they have said things like, there is no law in Christ. You could see where they could twist some scripture to say that. There's no law in Christ. Therefore, we just live however we want. And in the end, we get heaven. A more modern version of it, which we sometimes talk about how much we despise the error of easy believism. Preaching things like, you know, everybody bow your heads and close your eyes. And if you will just pray this prayer that I tell you, you say the magic words, then whenever you lift your head up, you're saved. And it doesn't matter what you do after that. I have even heard a preacher say, don't you let anybody ever question your salvation. You just prayed with me. You said the magic words and I'm telling you, you're saved. Now, with every single one of those errors that I just mentioned, I hope in your minds you were going, okay, but Philippians 1, okay, but Romans 6, okay, and you're thinking in your minds these passages that are there, and you could say, well, but doesn't the Bible just really clearly address all these errors? How do people believe this stuff? You are assuming <laughs> that they're studying the Bible or assuming that they're taking it honestly, and that's very often what these groups just will not do. They like to quote verses they like, twist certain scriptures, and then ignore a whole lot of places like Romans 6. So we are going to study Romans 6 so that we understand. We also find that in the study of these things, we come to comprehend more of the depths of the gospel and how it fits together. So here's the question. Does grace mean I can live as I please or even promote more sinning? Do the churches who preach the true gospel are they more or less godly than the churches that preach works-based salvation? I think always that one is a clear way of seeing the truth. Does grace mean I can do what I want? The thunderous answer given in verse two is, may it never be. It is an insult to the father who designed salvation, to the son who purchased it, and to the spirit who applies it to imply that the true message of the gospel produces more sin. What we will see in chapter six is that true justification always leads to sanctification. The true born again Christian will be sanctified. The truly justified Christian will be changed. His thinking will change. His behavior will change. His mind will change. He's been changed down to the very core of who he is. His heart has been altered and remade and therefore what comes out will be changed. And that change, that's what sanctification is. That transformation, 
that growth in godliness, that increase of obedience, that leaving of sin. That's what sanctification is. And so we have a whole chapter here on sanctification and even how it applies and connects with some other things here. So for this morning, let me introduce this chapter by teaching two main points. I know we've just spent like 25 minutes or so in the introduction, but that's what happens when we start new subjects, okay, and new doctrines. But let me, let me, let me, let me walk us through two parts, two truths that are going to help introduce us here. I want to spend a little bit of time explaining the whole of salvation, the whole process start to finish so that we see where chapter 6 fits in, where sanctification fits into the process. And then secondly, we're going to ask the question, what is it? What is sanctification? So let's get going with number one, the whole of salvation. The word salvation is a word that is used in different ways in the Bible. And that part can get a little confusing. Sometimes the word salvation is used to refer to the whole process start to finish of what it took to bring you to eternal life. What did it take? What is God doing in you believer right now? And then what, what is going to come in the future? The whole thing start to finish, we can refer to as your salvation. But something that can be confusing as well is that sometimes the Bible will use the word saved to refer to one specific part of your salvation, like your justification or your future final salvation. And that can be a little confusing. But by, by the way, it does get complex. It wasn't easy for God to save your butt. Okay. It is hard and we shouldn't expect everything to just be easy. Okay. It was a difficult, complex thing for God to bring us out of a destiny of hell and bring us into rightness with himself. And so we shouldn't just expect everything and, and be like, if it's, if it's not easy, then I don't want it. No, this is the salvation he purchased. But a, a source of a lot of confusion when we read the Bible can come this. Salvation is used sometimes to refer to the whole thing and sometimes used to refer to individual parts. So let me show you some scriptures that give this. I'm gonna show you some places where the Bible uses the word saved to refer to something in the past tense that happened to you, Christian, that is happening right now, and then uh, where it is going to happen in the future. So walk through some places with me. We often use the word saved like this. We may ask the question, when were you saved? Or have you been saved? And what we mean by the word saved in that context is, have you been, when were you born again and justified? When did you turn to Christ and believe? But part of what I'm trying to help you see is that the Bible uses that word in some other ways as well. And we'll get confused if we only think it refers to past tense, something that happened. And there's a great deal of confusion that has come. So let me show you some of these. In Luke 7, you can flip over there if you like. A woman comes to Jesus and gives maybe just the most beautiful moment of worship in all of history. Certainly, I think the most beautiful picture of worship in the Bible. A woman came to Jesus and washed Jesus's feet with her tears of repentance and with her hair. I mean, just a, a beautiful moment that comes. Something else to know about this woman is she was a wicked woman. This was someone who was a notorious sinner. This is not a good person but she comes to realize her need 
to be right with God. She comprehends her need of forgiveness. She sees Jesus is the answer. She turns from her rebellion. That's what repentance is. And she trusts in Christ and then comes and does this act here. Well, if you look at chapter seven, look at the very last verse there, verse 50. So after all this happens, by the way, it's a whole beautiful section that goes through there. But in verse 50, here's how Jesus concludes. He said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So that is referring to the fact that it's using the word saved in the ways that we most normally use it. She had been born again and justified. She was declared right with God. Her sins were forgiven. She was assured right there. She has eternal life. She was justified, counted as righteous in the eyes of God. Uh, But now look at uh, Romans 13, if you will. In Romans 13, verse 11, see a future tense that is used here. Romans 13, 11, do this, meaning the instructions that he just gave there, knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now, salvation is nearer to us than when we believe. Somebody could say, wait a second, I thought I was already saved in the past. This is talking about future. Well, here the word is used to refer to that final last moment when it's completed and you walk into glory. That is also referred to as the day of salvation. And then the one that throws people the most, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians is right after the book of Romans. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, this tense of the verb is used a couple of times, um, as well as some other places which show us more about this. 1 Corinthians 1, 18, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, I recognize some translations don't put the word being in there. They should, because it's the tense of the verb. And later in chapter 15, my beloved New American Standard, which I love, doesn't put the word being in there, but it should be there because that's the verb tense that's going on, being saved. Now, you could see how that would be confusing. If you think that the word saved only refers to past tense, your justification, And not in any other way. There is a way in which you, Christian, are still being saved before you pick up stones to throw. You are not still being justified. That took place in one decisive moment. At the moment of repentance and faith, you were made right with God. But once you turn to faith, turn to Christ and you are justified, God is not done with you. It's not that your eternity is uncertain, like God's like, well, we're gonna see how it works out. That's not what's happening. The promise of eternal life has been given. All who are justified will be brought into the kingdom of heaven. But that doesn't mean he's done with you. You have become God's project. He is still doing things and he is still at work. There is more that is to come and work that he is doing right now. So there are three passages there that refer to past, present, and future, and then a place which shows salvation as a whole, Philippians 2.12, which we'll look at a little bit later this morning. It says to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's referring to salvation as the whole thing. So we have the word saved through the whole thing, past, present, and future. To bring a little bit more clarity to this, turn over to Romans 8 with me. 
beautiful, beautiful truths. Romans chapter eight, you're familiar with verse 28. We know God causes all things to work together for good. To everybody? No. To those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. What does it mean to be called? Who is he referring to there? He clarifies in the next two verses before he busts into just one of the most glorious passages in all of the scripture. But verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Here's what we see. Your salvation encompasses everything that it took for God to save you. Before God formed the first molecule of the physical universe, he wrote the plan of history. He ordained it. He predestined it. Is that confusing and mysterious? You betcha. It's mysterious, but he's God. He's got it under control. We don't have the right to question him about it or tell him he's not allowed to do that. He ordained a plan. And in his plan, he planned a family made up of specific souls who would live on the earth and spread apart in time. And these people were not even created yet. He designed these people in his mind. He designed that he would make a world, have a complex history unfold, and he would place these children throughout history and set his love on them even in eternity past before we were created. He would bring them to be born at various times in that history. And then to each one of them, he would arrange providence he would orchestrate events behind the scenes in the heavenly realm and he would bring the gospel to these individuals and he would draw them, quicken them, awaken them and save them by his grace. He would arrange providence so that the gospel would come to them, to you who are in Christ. God designed you before the foundation of the world, set his love on you, planned even mysterious ways that he would bring the gospel into your life. Did you have a friend that shared the gospel with you? God was behind that. Did your parents present the gospel to you? God was orchestrating these things in order to bring you to salvation. This is mind-blowing, both in terms of love and sovereignty. So let's take a specific example. God designed Paul before the first molecule of the physical universe was created. He designed that Paul would be born, that the gospel would come to him. When the gospel came to him, God sent his spirit to stir, to call, to awaken. Paul was awakened and believed. Upon the moment of belief, he was justified. Then he became the project of God. God went to work on him, conforming, molding, transforming until the day came that Paul died and entered glory. But even there, 
Paul is not done yet. He is with the Lord in glory, but still awaiting the day when it is all completed and the future resurrection takes place with a glorified body and soul living in eternal life. And this is what God is doing with all of his elect. You didn't save yourself. God is at work in grace. He set his love on you. When you believed, and yes, it's just this wild mystery. You believed, you decided, we can use that language. It's not unbiblical to use that language. You decided to follow Jesus. But what the Bible shows is there were forces at work you and I did not see, and God was calling. God was awakening. We participate. It's a mystery. But when you believed, he justified you. And that's where you are this morning for you who are in Christ. You have been justified, but part of the point of what we're seeing here is God's not done with you yet. He's still working things. It's not justified and then just hang out and wait till you die. It's justified and then like, now the race begins. Now God is going to show his glory in a new way. He already showed his glory in a pretty amazing way to bring somebody like you and I who were completely uninterested and had a heart that was opposed to him and he brought us to himself. But now God is showing his glory in a different way. It's almost like he's saying to the angels, watch this. Look what I can accomplish. Look, look at the sin that I can bring him to hate. Look at the acts of obedience that in the past he never would have done. I will bring him to love me. I will bring him and mold him and renew him to trust me. This is the work that God is doing now. And he is preparing us for glory. For you who are in Christ, you are justified, but you're not done. God is doing things right now and there is a finish in the future. The finish in the future is glorification. You will totally be made glorious with no sin, but right now he is at work. For you who are not in Christ, you need to understand you are completely outside of this right now. You must be justified. You have no hope unless you turn to Christ. But Romans 6 Seven and parts of eight are all about this time in between justification and glorification, the sanctification. It's what God is doing right now. This is really amazing stuff. And it gets even better if you can believe it. There is certainty. There's certainty, Christian. God never predestines someone that he doesn't call. He never calls someone who doesn't believe. He never justifies anyone that he forgets to finish the work in. He never justifies someone who doesn't in the end get glorified. If you are in Christ, your salvation is certain. You are safe. You are safe in Christ. And yes, there are passages that talk about the other side of this as well, of make your calling and election sure. That's biblical language. There are passages that show the great mystery. We are to cling to Christ. We are to participate in these things. Don't run away. He who endures to the end will be saved. We talk about those things, but the Bible holds both of these truths together. The justified Christian is safe 
and we are to take warning. Both of them are true, but our security, our security is in Christ. Our security is that Jesus never fails. He doesn't start projects and then forget about them. He doesn't start projects and then fail to complete them. Philippians 1.6, for I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Your confidence is in the fact that your high priest is faithful to finish what he started. If his blood is applied, you will not be forsaken. But there is a great living out of our faith that comes. So what I hope we did there is to see the whole of salvation start to finish. Everything that, it's, that it took to bring us to eternal life. Sanctification is the process in between justification and glorification. Here's number two. So let's, let's think about this. What is sanctification? Let's start by defining it. And to do that, we can't do any better than the catechisms. Um, just telling you that uh, like numerous other spiritual disciplines that we encourage you to engage in, the memorizing of a great catechism will, will bless you in the sense of it's like taking the best of 2,000 years of teaching and then saying it in a condensed and simple way beautifully. You could go determine to write your own definition. You could spend 40 hours studying the Bible and then try to say it as beautifully as you could and you still wouldn't say it as good as the Baptist catechism, Okay. So here's what the Baptist Catechism, here's how it reads. I put it in the back of your notes there. Sanctification is a work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. So think it through. Justification is an act. Happens in a moment. Glorification will be an act. It will happen in a moment. First Corinthians 15. It will happen in the twinkling of an eye. But sanctification is a work. It is a process. It is a long and arduous process. Justification is God giving you legal righteousness. Sanctification is God producing practical righteousness. Justification is a legal transaction. Sanctification is a process of life transformation. Justification is God saving us from the penalty of sin. I deserve wrath and hell, the penalty of sin. Sanctification is a work that God does to save us from the power of sin right now. You've been legally purified in Christ. Now go be practically purified. Justification is being cleansed legally, forensically. God counts you as clean. Now the Bible says, go be clean in your lifestyle, in your behavior. Make the way you talk, the way you walk, the way you think be increasingly cleansed. There's a difference between your legal position and your life practice. The call of the Bible in chapter six here is make your life practice match your legal position. We are called to become what we have been made in the eyes of God. Jesus made you righteous in the eyes of God. Now let's go live righteous in our lifestyle. It's just such a beautiful truth and we constantly see it in the Bible. Here's what Jesus made you to be. 
Now go live consistent with it. You have been adopted to be sons and daughters of the living God. Go live as sons and daughters of the living God, which will mean a different behavior than the world around us. You have been made citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Let's go live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. That is sanctification, the process of growth. The Greek word, okay, and we don't say this to try to be smug and self-righteous, but the Greek word for holy is hagios. The Greek word for sanctification is hagios, moss. So you hear the connection of the word there. Sanctification is holyification. It's just, once again, not an English word, though it should be. We could see the connections a lot easier if that were the case. Well, I had a, gr- a great many passages I wanted to take you to, um, but for the sake of time, we're going we're gonna to condense this a little bit here. Let me rattle off some passages for you to just jot down for your notes. I'll just take you to one of them, okay? I can't resist this, so be gracious. One of them. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Look at verse 18, 2 Corinthians 3, 18, speaking of Christ and how we behold Christ in the gospel, 3, 18, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are being transformed. That's a common word used by the Bible, being transformed into the same image, image of what? Of Jesus from glory to glory. What does it mean, glory to glory? means it is happening in increments. It is happening in degrees. We are becoming more and more like what is beautiful, what is glorious, what is beautiful and glorious, Jesus is. We are becoming more and more like him. You could jot down 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, and you'd see the word renewed used. That's a common one in the New Testament. Romans 12, 1 through 2, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Uh, The word transform there is where we get our English word for metamorphosis, okay? So big change, and it happens by the renewing of your mind. Philippians 1, 6, God is at work perfecting you. We don't reach sinlessness in this age, but he's bringing us closer to it. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 13, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's God who is at work in you. Philippians 3, 12 to 14, Paul says, I haven't laid hold of it yet. I keep pressing on for it. Sanctification is about a new trajectory. A new trajectory. The Bible says that the new birth changes us at the core that we've been given new hearts, that the law of God has been written on these new hearts, meaning there are new desires. Our tastes change by the new birth. Things that used to be very sweet to us, sinful pleasures, begin to taste bitter to us. Things that used to be bitter to us, like the things of God, begin to have a, a sweetness about them. We begin to desire them. It's not exhaustive and it doesn't happen in completeness in this age. That's why we need glorification in the future. But we begin a new trajectory towards holiness. For the justified Christian, God is bringing change. And it's a change we participate in. 
There are things that God is doing to sanctify you that you have no sovereignty over. He chooses when hardship and trials will come into our lives. But then there are things that we are to take the initiative in to go further. As you read through some of those passages, you'll see equally some of those places saying it's God who is at work in you to sanctify you. And then some other places, Paul saying, I press on. It's both. God is at work and we participate in this work. The exhortation that scripture gives is, let's not be slack about it. Let's run. Let's get after it. Let's work hard in these things. Let's believe God that our holiness is our everlasting happiness. The progress that we make here is our great delight and reward in the age to come. So let's not resist it. Let's not drag our feet in sanctification. Let's not approach walking with God in terms of what's the bare minimum I can do and still get by with it. Let's believe him. Let's believe him that our great joy and our great delight and our great reward will come in part by how hard we run here. How much progress will we make? Just, just how far is the distance between who you were and what you're going to become before you're brought home to glory? That, that progress right there glorifies God and results in rewards. So let's joyfully and energetically participate. Let me end the application to you believer with just this one last verse. 1 Thessalonians 4.13, and you can jot that one down as well. It's very simple. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. This is the will of God, your sanctification. To you who are outside of Christ, do not imagine that somehow you're going to come to the day of judgment and find a way to make everything okay. If you are not saved, if you do not have Christ's righteousness, count it as yours. If you are not justified, you are not going to find a way to sweet talk God or make things okay. Hebrews 2 says, how will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Right now you're on the outside of this thing that you got to get in. The very gracious thing is, do you want it? You can have it right now. Believe. Trust, trust him. Turn and trust Christ. Call out to him and tell him you want to be saved and the Bible says, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you want to talk about that, want to ask questions, somebody to pray with, find me before you leave here this morning. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, um, Lord, we pray that you would sanctify us. We ask, oh God, that we would make great progress. We pray, God, for each of us as individuals and for one another as Members of the church family, we pray, God, sanctify us. Give us great progress. Make us holy. Um, Father, and I, I pray that we will display your glory to the world around us by shining brightly as lights in a dark world. Lord, and that you would reveal to your angels your great glory through this work. But please be at work in us, O oh God. And Father, I pray for any in the room that is unconverted. Father, please bring about your work of awakening. Bring them to trust Christ. Bless us as we leave, O oh Lord, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. 
Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed and were deeply affected by this week's message titled, What is Sanctification? Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter at TrueVineIND, or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.